Podcast Network. The Myth America Podcast, Episode 2, Mythos and Logos. Myth America. I'm your host, Lee Melander, and in this hour's, we look at the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that tell us, the metaphors that sit in the background of our consciousness and our sense of how the world works and how we make meaning in our lives. And this morning, I'm going light. You know, it's January, and it's one of those days where you've got a choice, right? You can either just go back to bed or you can dive in. And I thought, you know what? Diving in this morning, I woke up, there was a spectacular sunrise outside. And so today I'm going to climb into some of the ways that we separate the world. And we look at logos, we look at mythos, how that is a different way of understanding. We look at similar splits, science, mythology, rationality, life force, and also characterized actually as logos and eros. And we tend to see these things as really different. We like to delineate things as human beings. We're into, we're into one of these things not being like the other. We're into what makes things different and how we can categorize things. And that's a perfectly legitimate instinct. But I think it can also get us caught in really thinking in binary ways about the world. And this is one thing, and that is something else. The way I think is right, the way you think is wrong. We want our way to be right, our way to be better. And so if we look at the world as something that is only one thing or another, and we put ourselves in sort of the center of that equation, we get caught between which way to believe and which way to understand. And I think the... The fights right now about evolution versus creationist thinking, I think, is a great example of this. And I am not by any means a creationist, and I'm not even an intelligent design, somebody who believes in intelligent design per se. But I think we get caught in this, it has to be one way or it has to be another. What we don't understand there is that they're actually, we're looking for similar answers. We're using slightly different metaphors. We're using different constructs to go after the same meaning. And it can be really hard for us to understand that those two things can can exist simultaneously in our understanding of the world. So we have big fights about who's right and who's wrong and what one thing is and what one thing another thing is. And so science is in some ways very, very deeply different than religious faith. This morning, we're going to look at where where they might intersect a little bit. So if we're going to start, let's start at the beginning. It's a logical place to start. And I want to start with how we imagine that the universe began. So this, I told you, this is the light part. We got quantum physics coming. We've got, it's going to be a fluffy little morning here on Myth America. But stay with me because I think this is really cool stuff. So in a lot of the cultures in the world, 
the earliest sense of how the world began, how the universe began, starts either with light or with sound. And we're going to climb into sound a little bit today. So I want to start with the idea of Om. And you've probably heard this if, you, if you're a serious practitioner of Eastern philosophy or come out of Hindu traditions or uh, Indian traditions, East Indian traditions, and understand this word in a deep way, you're going to be light years beyond where I am in my understanding. But for most of us Americans, we've sort of dabbled with it. Maybe we've played with it in a yoga class or a meditation class, and we've said Om, and maybe we've taken it seriously. If you're like me, it's felt a little silly. Just, I think, because I'm sort of putting on somebody else's understanding of the world and, and perception of the world. But I want to go into it a little bit and explore it today because it's a really, really beautiful concept. It's not just a funny sound that you make when you're meditating. And out of Sanskrit, it's, it is a sacred sound. It's, it's the deepest sacred sound in most Indian religions, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, and also in Jainism. And it's part of early understanding of that religion. It's part of really the iconography found in ancient manuscripts and in temples and monasteries all, all throughout all, all of those religious traditions, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. And it's got a deep spiritual meaning and complex connotations as anything that's been around for that long and has moved through as many people's psyches and ways of processing. But at its core, it really is a, a very key somehow pure idea about soul within the self and which is Atman in, in uh, Hindu and Brahman, which is the ultimate reality, the entirety of the universe, all that is true, all that is divine, all that is sort of this kind of big cosmic reality that we live in. So it's a big, huge word that is about that intersection between that enormousness of the universe and our own sense of self in it. And that's a, it's, wow, in two, two letters in O-M or A-U-M, depending on how you spell it, so it could be three, but it's a very simple sound. And in the Hindu tradition, there is a sense of that being that sound that, in fact, created the universe. So the universe began in this sound of Om, and that all of the meaning of the universe, all of the life force in the universe, all of the love in the universe, everything that makes the universe a creative, creating entity, exists in that word. And it exists any time there's sound where a word specifically isn't identified, that that is Om. So it's a big philosophical concept and a big religious concept and a big cosmological concept. And I'd love for you to take just a second. It's part of what's cool about it is it actually sits in our body in a very particular way. And so if you try, try, try saying it, and I'm going to give you a little bit of instruction. So it's not pushing sound, air out of your vocal cords like you're singing. So this is not how we speak, right? Where I'm, I'm speaking to you right now, and I'm, you can, I can feel the air being pushed out of my diaphragm and making my vocal cords resonate, and I'm, I'm 
pushing hard to make specific energetic kind of spiky energy coming out of my mouth, right? Om is different. Om is actually about allowing the energy inside of you and around you just pass by your vocal cords. And so they vibrate and resonate just as that energy is coming by you. So it's not pushing anything out. It's it's allowing the energy that's in you and outside of you to actually get you get your vocal bands and your body kind of vibrating because we all vibrate all the time everything all matter has a vibration to it all matter has a sort of frequency to it so take a second and just try that and see what it feels like to just let that sound happen emerge find its way to your vocal cords rather than trying to actively make it and just that act is a really interesting, different way of engaging with the universe than we generally do on a day-to-day level. So just try that for a second. And as it's coming out of you, there's air flowing within your body, from within your body to, your outs- to the world outside, right? It's not pushing that air out. It's allowing it to flow. So with that in mind, that that's what the embodiment of this, actually how you make this sound. There's something rather fabulous about taking that as a metaphor for how the universe vibrates and that it isn't pushing, it's just simply flowing. It's resonating. It's vibrating. And as you say this word, according to the folks who really know what they're talking about, that this makes your body vibrate in a very particularly complete way. So the ah sound affects the lower part of your body. The om, so the o rather, so it's aum, right? It's not just om, it's aum. So the o starts to affect the middle part of your body, and the m vibrates in the upper part of your body. So you're actually going the whole way through your body with the sound. So I dare you to try it again. Just om, letting it flow and feel it moving through your body. So in this moment, when you do that, you're a little piece of the universe vibrating, according to this tradition, with the kind of frequency that the, the universe itself vibrates with. That's the sound of the universe. So there is that sense of oneness that comes out of that and that's so deep in these traditions, in part is driven by this very simple yet very, very rich idea about how frequency works and how resonating together joins everything together. And how we are a part of the universe in a very particular way. Kind of cool. So uh, there's a, a, a metaphoric, mythic, mythos-driven. And, and when I say maybe I should back out a little bit and talk about logos and migos, mythos just a little bit. And I'm going to dive in and kind of circle around those two things uh, throughout this hour this morning. But So when we talk about logos, we tend to think in this era, about rationality. So this rational thought. So science, we put 
clearly in the framework of logos. And in mythos, we tend to think of the things that are mythic, that aren't necessarily true, that are narrative-driven, and we connect them. And and, uh, Carl Jung connected mythos and eros, which meaning love, but really kind of a life force. And he pulled these some of that work out of Platonic ideas. He also was leaping forward from a lot of the work that uh, Freud was doing around Eros and libido, which I always think of as libido. I had a wonderful French faculty member in grad school. And she talked about how we, we translate those words badly from the German and Freud, and we tend to, in our little puritanical get giddy over things we think are scatological. We think Freud was absolutely fixated on sexuality. And in actuality, he really wasn't any more than most Victorians were. What he really was trying to get after was this sense of love as life force. And it connected into the body in a very particular way, absolutely. And and we tend to separate, you know, kind of in this era, we think of love of the heart, and that's one thing, and then we think of sexual love as being something different. And I think in Freud's view, they actually were more intertwined. He was trying to connect to the body in a particular way. But it really isn't just about sort of giggly, you know, erotica. It's about the love that is the thing that makes the world work in his worldview. So, and that doesn't tend to live in science as we think about it. We tend to think of science as being cold and rational, and then this other sort of faith-based, imaginal, sort of warm, fuzzy humanities, maybe the religious way of looking at the world, maybe the sort of a humanistic and intuitive way of looking at the world that's very, very different. And so part of what I want to shake out today is I don't actually think they're as different as we think they are. There are distinct frameworks for each that are disciplines that I think are really important. And I think it's valid to see them on some level as different, but I don't think they're diametrically opposed to one another. And in fact, I think they all exist and intertwine. And as I said at the top of the hour, I think they become metaphors to understand the world around us that actually talk to each other with far more elegance than we sometimes think they might. So We've been working this idea of Aum and the big universal sound and this imagining in Hindu and Buddhism and uh, Jainist cultures that this is the sound the universe itself makes. So here's the cool thing. They're not wrong, necessarily. (laughs) So if you flip hats and look at physics... One of the things that is driving quantum physicists right now is an effort to try to understand where the universe came from. So they're trying to answer the very question that religions try to answer. How did this all start? Where did it come from? How do you understand something that seems to have no beginning and no end, even though it's not static? even though there's life in it and there's movement in it. And in fact, in, this, in the, the, the universe, there's a lot of movement. So where did it start and where did it come from? And if you look into physics, the latest theories in quantum physics, a lot of them actually are about sound. And there's string theories, there, uh, it, there's a whole series of ideas that physicists are working on, and they don't know if they're right. 
but they think they have some ideas about how it might work. And so putting on our quantum physicist hat at 9.17 on a Tuesday morning, there is an increasingly strong theory in quantum physics that there was a period of time in the universe after the Big Bang, and in universe terms, a very short time after the Big Bang, thinking maybe 30,000 years, which, again, in universe time is a minute. The universe, physicists talk about how the universe began to sing. It began to make the sound of voice, of bells, that in fact the universe at that moment was about sound waves. And so big, huge sound waves started rolling out. And if you if you studied any any physics at all or looked at, at any sort of research on sound waves, you'll see that they really do look like waves. They're like these lines of rolling energy. So in the universe, we're thinking that Physicists are thinking that coming through the sort of primordial cosmos, the thing that existed before the universe as we know it exists now, after the what they think was a, a sort of ridiculously named Big Bang, which is in some ways not a very good characterization of what they think happened, but the, there's this sense of ripples of sound waves expanding and determining the universe's structure. To move to a different culture for a moment, there's a wonderful tradition in the Aboriginal cultures in Australia called Songlines. And Bruce Chatwin wrote a beautiful book about this a number of years ago. And the idea is, as you are walking through the landscape, you are traversing paths, your lines, that have been traversed by your ancestors for thousands of years. And as you walk these paths, you actually are singing, you sing as you go, and you're singing the landscape into being. So instead of just simply moving through the landscape, you're actually creating it with your voice as you step into it, which is not unlike this idea of Om, that you are actually making, that you are the creator of the universe on some level. And I think physicists are beginning to see that as true. We're starting to understand a lot more about how our thought patterns impact the world. And there's fascinating research on mirror neurons and and how our thoughts and other people's thoughts and our energies and other people's energies actually have direct impact. There's amazing research coming into how the plant world is actually resonating with itself in a very particular set of ways. So we're just taking baby steps into understanding any of this science with any clarity at all. And somehow these ancient cultures have intuited this at the same time. That's one of these points of connection to me. I think that's really powerful, amazing, magical stuff. And it feels to me like, okay, there's a particular kind of truth that resides in this if we're finding it from these two very different directions. So think about a universe and a worldview of a universe or an understanding, a comprehension of a universe where you are actually part of what's singing it into being. I think this dramatically changes how you interact with it. We aren't simply walking through it or taking advantage of it or being thrown around by it. We are co-creating it. 
So moving back to this this wave theory and ideas in quantum physics about sound waves and the creation of the universe. I'm going to go into some 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 kind of scientific language here because I, I just I think it's it's fascinating stuff. So part of what I love is that the physicists have silly nerdy senses of humor and they name they give wonderful uh acronyms uh, to things. So one of them I'm going to forget. Oh, shoot. I, I should I noted it down somewhere and I'm not finding it in my notes. But there's one of them is called uh, WIMP and it's how how powerful or powerless the universe is. And the acronym is WIMP. So this acronym is BOSS. And this is the Baryon Oscillation, Oscillation Spectroscopic Survey. One more time, the Baryon Oscillation Spectroscopic Survey. And this is a big, huge survey that has been looking at 327,349 galaxies. So this would be a boss of a survey. This would be a big survey. And so what this survey has found is these galaxies are on average about 6 billion light years away, which may be the fact that they're all about that same space away is one of the reasons that the Big Bang Theory has some credence, because there's a sense that something happened that there was a big shift fairly fast, dramatic shift fairly fast. So it wasn't just sort of moving along and gradually shifting, but there was something that popped the universe into a very different reality. There was some sort of tipping point. And in that tipping point, the matter of the universe got spread out enough that the force of gravity couldn't slow down its attraction. And so something happened and this repulsive force that physicists call dark energy took hold. And ever since that moment, that Big Bang moment, this acceleration has been going faster and faster and faster and faster. So the universe is getting bigger, faster now than it was six billion light years or six, uh, six billion years ago. Okay. So. Now, do we know that for sure and for certain? Nope. But there's a sense of, as they're looking at this, that something's cooking in this. And one of the things that I love about all of this is, is this idea of dark energy, and nobody knows what it is. Nobody can explain what it is. It's very, quote-unquote, mysterious, but it's often, it's almost like when the Greek storytellers would talk about a god or a goddess. They'd say, you know, gray-eyed Athena over and over again. They'd use, or palace Athena. They'd use these epithets that became part of the rhythm of telling the story. And here are these physicists who say, well, mysterious dark energy, it's almost the same momentum, which, again, another little tiny sort of point of connection in the human psyche, even when we think we're doing something very different than someone else. We're, we're not always. The interior processes can be really similar. So studying all of these galaxies, 327,349 galaxies. I love the specificity of that number. That's the other thing I love about physics. It isn't, we think there are around 300,000 galaxies. Nope, nope. Nope, there are 327 and three, or 327,349 galaxies, not 50, 49. So by looking at these galaxies, all dating about the same time that dark energy emerged as the dominant force in the universe, cosmologists and quantum physicists are hoping that they can understand something about this mysterious whatever it is. 
It's everywhere. Dark energy. In all likelihood, it accounts for about, it's over 70%, so they think 73% of all of the mass and energy in the universe. And in the 15 years that this theory has really been emerging, 15 to 20 years, that, that the physicists feel like it is essential to explaining the behavior of the universe, but they don't, they don't know what it is. They don't have the understanding of the physics to understand what it is. And so there's been a lot of argument about, well, does it even exist? And there's a sense that, yeah, it does. It's an unknown form of energy. They think it's permeating all of space. It's accelerating the growth of the universe. And there's some wonderful stuff from a guy named Dave Goldberg, who is a professor at Drexel. He's the associate dean for research. He's a, he's a cosmologist and a, a physicist. And he says... Dark energy, as you most certainly know if you're an avid sci- a pop psi reader, is a mysterious substance. It's always called mysterious. He's even there. Which causes the universe to accelerate. Which is This isn't as ridiculous as it would seem at first blush. Because when it comes to gravity, you've probably been lied to. You probably already know that mass creates a gravitational field. But general relativity shows that any form of energy, including a big box of photons, will do the trick. Stranger still is that gravity gets an extra power up if there is pressure involved. Under normal circumstances, we don't notice this because even in the center of the sun, the pressure is tiny as compared to energy density. But dark energy is weird. He writes, the idea that the pressure is negative, kind of like elastic, means that net gravity is about repulsion. So it's not about, we think about gravity as being, as pulling things together. Well, dark energy suggests that actually that isn't the main function of gravity. It's not anti-gravity, he says, mind you. But if you've got your heart set on writing dark energy into your story, it's probably anti-matter, anti-gravity is probably the best you're going to do. And in another serious, silly, brain wander, one of the characters that inhabits my psyche a lot, who is the one of the aunties of the Queen of Frivolity, who is my... My my spirit guide, if I've got one, uh, who lives in the land of turning left when you're supposed to go forward. Auntie Gravity is one of her aunties. So, the, and what amuses me about that is the is the this metaphor of is she light? Is she heavy? Is she serious? Is she not? She's very French, so that explains a lot. She can sit in the two of them. So. This idea of dark energy and this idea of, of, of acceleration, this is why we believe that the sound waves, these bells ringing, this singing of the universe actually happened. And even that in its description to me, the idea that we're describing this as dark energy without understanding what it is, feels very mythological to me. So it's almost a mythic understanding of a scientific concept. And we're not sure of its properties. So it could be fluid. The pressure of it could change from place to place, from time to time. We're not sure that that's the case. Dark energy is in its own way really small. And so it's possible, and this is something that he writes, is probably likely to piss off many physicists, is that it's maybe simply 
the anthropic principle at work. Maybe all universities have more or universities, <laughs> more university universes. Thank you, have more or less dark energy. But the ones that with more of us got accelerated so quickly that no stars or any complex structures could form. So that would mean nothing actually got created. So there's something amazing about a kind of balance that as you're sitting in your living room experimenting with making this sound ohm about it being the self and the universe, this very small energy and this universal beyond our comprehension enormous energy intertwining, existing, coexisting, being co-created at the same time. And to me, this whole momentum around dark energy and these sound waves really coincides with that rather beautifully on a metaphoric level. So I thought I'd jump now to another understanding of sound and how sound creates the universe and the beginning of everything. And that's jumping into the Judeo-Christian culture with the phrase out of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. So in the beginning was Om. In the beginning was this sound wave, this big bang. There was something that shifted. And that sense of voice and sound and shaped sound is key and central to cultures all over the world in their creation myths. There there are versions of this that come up all over the place. And so I think what that does is it starts to shape our sense of this intersection between mythos and logos, between singing and speaking, between poetry and rational discourse. And it starts to sit in this one idea of the word. So if we look at how the early Christians imagined that passage out of John, and the whole phrase reads, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Well, the word in this setting in the earliest Greek versions that are still extant of the Bible today, the word that they used for word with big old capital W was logos. And depending on that, there's been a whole, as you can imagine, a whole lot of theological thought around this phrase. This is a biggie. And in a lot for a lot of theologians, the word logos means Christ in the Christian view of the world. And in a broader Judeo-Christian context, it's capturing the sense of the essence of what this divinity, that this, this religious structure calls God. So, and it's about denoting a nature or an essential, not even aspect, that's the wrong word, but sort of the enormity all of thisness. So this is this is way not the guy with the beard up in the clouds. This is godness. This is divinity. This is the universe. This is universal energy. 
So in this moment, in this verse, there is this understanding that the word, the sound, is divinity. And the word, again, being translated as logos, in, in, in the Eastern traditions would have been om. So they intersect here, even though they don't necessarily know they intersect. They don't necessarily consciously intersect. But there's a similarity of understanding that I think is really fascinating. And the nuances are different, absolutely. And sometimes uh, the, that's the gloriousness of any of this, that, that you can get reductionist if everything looks so much the same that you can't see any differences. And so the, the devil and, and, and the divine are in the details in some ways. But there are also these points of connection that I think... Again, to use that word resonate, really resonates with me, but I think resonate in how they connect with each other and connect beautifully with this idea of living in this resonating universe that's all about sound waves, all of which are vibrating. And so if we're thinking about this word logos and all that is divine sitting in that word, Thinking of how the Christian, the Judeo-Christian tradition imagines that the world began is not that different from how the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Jainists imagine it. So jumping into the word logos a little further and trying to peel that back a little bit and, and open that up a little, this is a word that they borrowed from the earlier Greeks. And it's a word that means discourse or reasoning, it comes from an earlier Greek understanding of it as being an opinion, an expectation, or a plea, which I think is really beautiful. So there's an asking in it. We tend to think of rationality as being that pushing of the air out of your body, right? I'm, I'm thinking my have, that has form, it has shape, it's speaking, but the idea that it's also a plea softens that to me a little bit. Heraclitus, who started to use it, he was the earliest philosopher to use it in a philosophical context, and he saw it as a principle for order and knowledge. And I'm just going to dance around a whole variety of ways that the Greeks saw it, because they all saw it a little bit differently. So the sophists saw it as discourse. They saw it as, as this, you know, talking back and forth. Aristotle took it one step further and saw it as reasoned discourse. So it's the argument in the field of rhetoric. So it's the logos is in a guy who is really deeply immersed in the idea of logic and rationality and speaking. And as a philosopher, a very sort of science-based philosopher on some levels, he, he was not into big flights of fancy. He's not you know, into, into fuzzy thinking. He was really trying to delineate and organize and clarify. And he was doing it in the world of thought and ideas, but he was doing it in a very mathematical, scientific kind of way. And so for him, logos, this word, this grounding, this opinion, this expectation was about reasoned discourse. So the divinity in for him is in the reasoning behind it. The Stoic philosophers went the other way, and they saw it as much more like Ohm, sort of this big principle that defines and pervades the universe, the animating principle, 
making the universe. It's the thing that makes things come to life. So this idea of thought and word is what makes the universe happen. Again, to sound, but it's a shaped sound. It's not just amorphous, it's shaped. In the way that sound waves are shaped. In the way that ohm is shaped. Philo actually took, who was a Hellenistic Jew, in Hellenistic Judaism, he was living just after Christ, 20 BC to to 50 AD, so right around the, the time of this explosion of the first earliest understandings of Christianity. Uh, and, and really when Judaism was, was establishing itself as a, as a force to be reckoned with in that part of the world. And he, he pulled that term into Jewish philosophy. So he was one of the places where this starts to intersect into the languaging and the Judeo-Christian tradition. And if you look then at the gospel of John, He's identifying Logos in the beginning. There was the word as he moves through it and starts to work that idea further. He's really seeing this as being everything that is divine theos. So theosophy, theology comes from that theos being divine, being God. And for John, even he, he sort of takes it in his, as a Christian, Jesus Christ is the, is the guy that actually embodies that he's the, he's Logos incarnate basically. So, which is not necessarily how we think of that archetypal figure at this point in a lot of post-Protestant uh, sort of fundamentalist religions, at least in the United States. You know, they, the, there's, there's not a lot of thinking of logic and discourse necessarily. It tends to be much more mythos-driven in our understanding of it. So an interesting tension there, I think, in how how we understand and how we think about it. And the, it wasn't, by the way, in, for the Greeks who were writing prior to writing the Gospels in, into Greek, translating the Gospels into Greek, it's separated from word as an everyday sort of word. It was a different, you know, what's that word for? I can't remember the word for that sense of word. The Greeks used a different, uh, they used lexis, as in lexicon, Actually, that's a really interesting, I hadn't thought about that, but as we think about lexicons, this idea of delineating, right, this idea of making things, lists out of things and understanding the differences between things, that's key in the understanding of lexicon, and, and, and it, that's what lexicons, lexicons do. So the idea that word in that way is a small word that's making meaning through small pieces and clarity is very different from the idea of logos as a word, which is this enormous, all-encompassing understanding of the world. And so I think you could make the argument that logos actually holds in this sense, rather than being the opposite of mythos and eros, actually holds that life force within it, because it's it's everything, at least in how these guys thought. Carl Jung went slightly different direction. I mentioned it earlier. He saw Logos as being rationality and Eros as being the opposite. And one of the places where I, I personally think Jung fell down on his nose is he then decided he needed to attribute those masculine and feminine qualities, which makes my teeth itch, because I think that's really off base. And I understand why he did it. He was a you know guy of his culture and his era, and it's it's an easy thing to say. Oh yes, you know, mas- ma- rascul- ma- rational masculinity is straightforward and direct, and feminine 
lack of rationality, intuition is very soft and embraceive and, and a lot of people have bought into that and it's something that I will go to the mat fighting against because I think it's a horrendous way to delineate what's different between masculine and feminine. I think it's a deeply, deeply sexist way of thinking and really disempowers people in some horrible ways. And do I feel strongly about this? Mm, yes. But I think the piece that he got that was interesting was understanding how these two things, this rationality and life force and love and life energy could feel separate. And he, he didn't make that up. He, he was really pulling from some platonic thought about that. And he was trying to, in this lexicon kind of way, help understand how we came at this differently. And he was doing it in an era when he was taking, you know, there, there he came after Freud. He was a student of Freud's. They were close companions and colleagues and friends. And then there was a big schism. They had a big break and they, they fought with each other and they, they went their separate ways. And I think for both of them, but particularly for Carl Jung, he really wanted psychology to be seen as a science rather than an art because he's living in an era when science was emerging as if he were doing anything that was meaningful and it was really shaping the world in any, in any important way. It had to be science. And so he spent a lot of time pushing to try to put psychology in that box. And I, I think that's actually the place where he probably caught himself most badly. And he had brilliant, you know, many years of absolutely brilliant thought. And he, he's gotten kind of a bad rap. Both Freud and Jung have gotten bad raps and oversimplified and badly translated and sort of talked as about as being the kind of woo-woo crazy guys. And if you actually go read their work, it's it's their minds were remarkable. And what they were trying to push for, especially given where they were coming out of the thought traditions that they were coming out of, was really revolutionary and really powerful. But I think he got caught in that either-or, very binary way of looking at the world, that it either was science or it was art. And given the two, he wanted it to be science. And so he spent a lot of time trying to shoehorn it into a box so it would feel that way. And I think those are the places where there the, are the sort of biggest woundings in his thinkings, because I think he got so caught by that that he started to get lost. And a lot of this stuff around Logos and Eros even though there's some, I think, really valuable stuff in it, it also, he sees them as being so diametrically opposed. And it reflected his own discomfort, actually, with women. And they got all kind of entwined, actually, for him. His mom he had a very difficult relationship with his mother, and then he had a young nanny who was very hard on him. And so he didn't trust women very much, even though he was a good therapist to women over the years. He also had this sort of underlying sense that, women weren't to be trusted and I think that bled out into his understanding of how these how women thought and how men thought and, and how they were different and how this kind of clear, cold, cool, clear eyed rationality was the way to go and that was what men had. So I th and that's meaningful I think in this conversation because I think it's an example of how somebody who's really working this stuff really deeply can still get caught up in their own stuff and start not seeing their their our, our, their own lenses. And we all do that. And I think it's one of the places when we try to do this really my way is better, your way is less good way of thinking in the world that we get caught with that and we start to 
buy into our own cognitive biases and we start to look at things and say, well, see, yes, so that looks this way. And I'm sure I'm guilty of that, too. And my even my connecting the dots here on some level is my own my own bias of wanting to see these connections. And you could just as eloquently make the argument that the science of Om or the art of Om or the mythos of Om has nothing to do with the Big Bang Theory or string theory or quantum physics. But I think you'd be wrong. So moving into that sense then of physics is over here, philosophy is over here, science is over on one side, religion is on the other, or mythology the brain is on one side, the heart and the intuition on another. We tend to think that way. I worked a number of years ago with a publishing company. We were publishing a, a science curriculum for little kids, and we were working with this great organization called the Coalition for the Public Understanding of Science, COPUS. They do great stuff, and they're really trying to help bring science and technology out into the community in a way that it hasn't been for a while. And there was a kind of explosion of pop science understanding really as NASA emerged and these amazing astronauts who were, they were cowboys as well as scientists, as well as, you know, pilots, and they were brave and handsome and articulate and funny, and they really captured the American imagination and in many ways the world's imagination about what science could be about. And as NASA expanded, there was a whole lot of writing about science and talking about science in the culture. And then somewhere along the line, a number of things happened, one of which was that the scientists decided that pop science was was too simplistic and it was too reductionist and people were not understanding the complexities of the scientific thought. And it was better to pull back than put out what felt to a hardcore scientist like light science. And so for a number of years, there, it sort of dried up. And what the scientists realized is they're scratching head, looking around, saying, we live in a culture that is remarkably unsophisticated about science in this era. And the ones who were willing to be a little self-aware about where, what part science had played in this we're realizing that part, this is part of what had happened, is that, that it had been pulled out of everyday conversation and put into the ivory tower, back behind the fence, where the important people who thought big thoughts, who had the capacity to think the big thoughts with all of the nuance and, and technical understanding and sophistication could think them, and the rest of you sort of pedestrian little plebes running around on the face of the planet without a clue would never understand it. And oddly, people got disinterested when they got given that message. So there's been a shift back, and uh, you know, a couple of the figures are kids are Bill Nye, the science guy, has become a, a guy that does this, and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson has been a a big voice for this, and Richard Feynman and, and uh, a number, and there are a number of scientists that have done that. And so this is starting to shift again, and there's an awareness, I think, and a very conscious awareness in the scientific community that this is changing. But when I was working with this Coalition for the Public Understanding of Science, they were having a year of science where they were really trying to move it in around, out into the culture in a variety of ways, particularly working with elementary school kids. And I'm was talking with them and talking with a group of the scientists that they were working with who were wonderful. And these are, you know, big brains that are doing really cool stuff and approachable and accessible in a lot of cool ways. And as somebody who lives in the world of imagination, I said, you know, I'd love to 
do a book of interviews with scientists about the intersections of science and imagination. And the woman I was talking to, actually two of them were sitting in a meeting. She looked at me, they looked, both of them looked just aghast at me and said, oh no, oh no, there's no imagination in science. And I thought, really? So I thought I would end today's conversation around this playing with some ideas around the intersections between physics and philosophy. And philosophy, the word philosophy from philo or philo and sophie is the love of wisdom. So in this, there is an eros in philosophy. It's a love of understanding, of thinking, of thought, of knowledge itself as something of an object. And so it's an effort to use ideas and thoughts to step outside of the immediacy of our own experience and in a quantifiable way, think about the process of thinking itself. So thinking about how we make meaning in a very particular way. And in that move, even though this feels, again, in Western culture right now, how many philosophers do you know? How many philosophers are getting quoted on any regular basis? Philosophy programs around the country are dying on the vine because nobody thinks they have a purpose. Humanities in general are, are struggling, but hum- philosophy is, people are really thinking it's, you know, where, where's, the, where's the practical application in this? Why does it matter? And it feels like this sort of, you know, sitting off thinking big thoughts for sort of self-referential game. And it can be that. And I think in some ways the philosophy community was as guilty as the science community in pulling back and, and making itself impenetrable to people. And which is a shame because I think it's there and is as deeply important in culture as, as science is. Because if we don't understand how we're thinking and why we're thinking something, we are condemned to be caught in that thought pattern. It's why I love mythology. It's why I love looking at the stuff that's sitting in the background, because if we see it, we can actually understand it a little bit better and see it as something that we're a part of, but also that we, we make. And it's why when I start the show, I talk about these are the stories that we tell and the stories that tell us. It's we are both making meaning and being made by the very process by which we make meaning. Does that make sense? She's going deep, folks. There's only a few more minutes. Stay with me. So philosophy being the love of women, uh, of women, <laughs> I've got some wonderful, uh, wonderful words coming out of my mouth this morning. The love of wisdom, philosophy, thank you very much, is a desire to know. Aristotle talks in metaphysics, metaphysics. Right. Even we talk about metaphysical, that word physics is sitting in there. He says, all men by nature desire to know. That's not that different from a scientific desire to know. And it's probably closer even than a religious desire to know, though they all are the same desire. But a philosophic desire to know shapes it a little bit differently than a religious one. It's, it's further into the pendulum in, in, if we think of these things as being very different, if we think of logos and mythos being very different. Philosophy sort of sits in the center of them. So 
in the science world, it used to be that scientists actually spent a lot of time thinking about philosophy, and they've not tended to. But one of the things that's kind of cool is that in this era, with the advance of quantum physics, really since Einstein and his colleagues, his contemporaries, started to play with these big ideas where they're intersecting cosmology and mathematics and a whole lot of science disciplines into one thing that looks like this imaginal physics on some level. There's been a connection, I think, starting, beginning to think about these moments of where philosophy might intersect. And part of that is because the basic understanding and idea in science is that one of the things that differentiates science from the rest of how we think about the world is that you can prove your idea. And this is a really valid argument in the is creationism a form of science versus evolution? And no, it's not, because you can't prove it. There's nothing... It's a set of ideas, it's a set of metaphors, it's a set of stories that, that are marvelous, but they have a different process because you can't go look to, there's no, there's no scientific undergirding to understanding that, yes, in fact, this actually did happen necessarily. And so they are two different ways of thinking. However, quantum physics starts to get this all mixed up because quantum physicists are playing with ideas that they can't prove in any direct way. And so there's some, uh, some great ideas about this uh, from a guy named uh, Richard uh, Dawid, who is a, a philosophy of science researcher at a university in Munich. His PhD is in theoretical physics. And he was re a researcher of particle physics. So he was a hard particle physics, physicist science guy, as well as a theoretician from the beginning. So he's interested in ideas, and he's interested in how we think about ideas. So he's talked about this transition to philosophy that he made because he found it fascinating to think about how, how physicists who think of themselves as scientists could be spending this time playing with theories that they can't actually find empirical evidence directly that's proving them. And so he says the thing that has, has shapes this and, and keeps it feeling legitimate for most physicists, at least, is that there are, there are three ideas where they're considering kind of background assumptions uh, about how, how they build this idea. So they have also believed that a theory is only scientifically valid if it's falsifiable, meaning if it's provable, true, true or not. And this is actually a philosopher, Karl Popper, who, who put that forth about science. So even, even that idea about that science has about itself comes from a philosopher. So string theory being an example, we can't test it. So he's just, uh, identified three reasons why physicists feel like they can actually jump into this theoretic, theoretical physics model legitimately. The first is an argument about there's no alternative. So if people have tried to find other possible solutions that, that didn't work, the, the only one that's been convincing is in all likelihood a reasonable one scientifically. The second one is what he calls a meta-inductive argument. So if the theoretical research program has come up with an idea or a theory that was later proven, theories that have a similarly 
that are connected to that have a have a reasonably good, similarly good chance of being verified. So, for example, string theory research is comparable to standard model research because of some of the things that they found to be true in standard model research. And then the last one is there's a kind of coherence argument where if it solves the question that it was intended to solve, there's in all likelihood it's right. And in fact, he says, it'll give you more than you plan to get out from it. Now, together, these aren't as, as strong from a scientific standpoint as empirical evidence. But what I love about this is that it comes back to this energetic mythos, eros-driven idea of how when we put energy out there in the world, we are of that energy, we are creating that energy. And in that connection of these energies, this sense of mythos and logos, of eros, of scientific thought, of imaginal metaphoric thought, all start to really intertwine and connect. And with that, I'm coming to close to the end of an hour, and I so appreciate you staying with me. Thank you so much for joining me on Myth America today, and I hope you'll join me again soon. so much for joining me today. Myth America is sponsored by Spillion, a place to revel in the Catskill Mountains of New York. You can find out more about Myth America, Spillion, and me at mythamericaradio.com. Please stop by and share your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. 